Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Schwarze Milch der Frühe, wir trinken sie abends, wir trinken sie mittags und morgens, wir trinken sie nachts, wir trinken und trinken. Wir schaufeln ein Grab in den Lüften, da liegt man nicht eng. Ein Mann wohnt im Haus, der spielt mit den Schlangen, der schreibt, der schreibt, wenn es dunkelt nach Deutschland. Partylands Poetry marks the end of European modernism. He's the last poet of the era where the poetic eye, the personal voice, could center a subjective vision of the world through language. Ceylon bears witness to the Holocaust as irredeemable rupture in European civilization, but he does so in German, the language of the perpetrators who murdered his parents, along with millions of others. I spoke with Amir Eschel, a critic and poet, who's also a professor of humanistic studies and German literature and comparative literature at Stanford. Amir's books include Poetic Thinking Today, Futurity, Contemporary Literature and the Quest for the Past, and several studies of Ceylon. I also co-edited a book with Amir on Hannah Arendt. We talked about Ceylon and how we first found this poet, myself, through and away from my native German, Amir from his native Hebrew into German, and then we talked about Ceylon in today's English and what he means for the world and us. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Bear. So I am really happy to be speaking today with you, Amir. First of all, thank you for joining me on the podcast, Think About It. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's great. We've been having conversations for, I don't know how many years, probably two decades almost, or close to it. Two decades for sure. Yeah. About Paul Ceylon and the poet was born in 1920 in today's Ukraine and Chernovitz 
grew up speaking German, learned also Russian, Ukrainian, Hebrew, some Yiddish. We'll talk about that a bit. French and other languages and really grew up before the war to become a poet. He went to school in France for a little bit in the late 1930s. And he was one of those young European men of letters from one of those places where people spoke so many languages who wanted to become just a poet, let's say, just a poet. Yeah. And then, as we know, history intervened in the most brutal, terrible fashion. So he lost his parents in the Holocaust and the Nazi occupation. He was in a forced labor camp and then emerged in a way in 1945, 46, 47. He settles in Vienna, first of all, ultimately goes to Paris. And I think from today's perspective, he would strike me as someone who we would call a multicultural poet who grew up in a minority speaking language in another place and then goes to other countries because he has to flee his homeland and settle somewhere. And then he writes poetry, which I think is the fascination and the puzzle and also a hope for a lot of people. He writes poetry in German then after the war. Yeah. How did you first encounter Ceylon and where was that? Do you remember? Yes, I remember vividly. You know, I was still in Israel during that time in my youth, and since I didn't speak a word German, um, I, you know, first discovered him in translation into Hebrew, and was absolutely fascinated and taken, you know, with the poetry. There was some sort of magic about it that I couldn't quite explain, you know, to myself. Um, and then read everything I could find, you know, in Israel at that time, which was this small collection of poetry in Hebrew. And then I bought a Michael Hamburger's translation into English. That was a bilingual edition, and I sat there, you know, with the English and the German and dictionary in the hand and kind of word for word deciphered what I could. And um, I think it's really it's the power of the poetry which drew me in um, with 16, 17 or so, and uh, it lasted until today. Right. So the, so the first translation, so you looked at the Hebrew translations, which existed in the 70s and 80s, and then Michael Hamburger's fame, very well-known translations into English. Right? Yeah. Which yeah. were, the, I think, the introduction for many people into English out of German. When you puzzled through with a dictionary, you've discovered now that even native German speakers have to puzzle through and are really stumped and confounded by Ceylon's poetry. Indeed, indeed. I mean, reading Ceylon is an experience. It's not just, you know, the encounter with a set of images, metaphors, etc. I think it's a true, you know, physical and emotional experience. So the difficulty of the language, the fact that even native speakers have difficulty with this poet, I think indicates that there's something about it that's visceral, that's corporal almost, in its constitution. And I think that's what makes him such a powerful and lasting voice. It's a really, as you said, corporeal, I like that. It's interesting that he lived through such terrible things. And then when he speaks about his own language, it's always in very physical terms. They're not just metaphors, the idea of a breath turn or the idea of sort of going to the depth of language. There's something as if he suffers through it and passes through something and comes out in some other place transformed. 
Indeed, indeed. I think he strives, or his poetry strives to, in various ways, suspend time. Suspend time as we usually experience time. You know, we kind of go about our lives, rush through the day, through the week, etc., busy doing this and that, accomplishing this and that. And I think his poetry is really an opportunity to suspend that flow and rush of time, to really pay attention to not just, you know, verse and word, but really to a single letter, to the space between the letters. And I think it's closedness, or what a lot of people call hermeticism, has a lot to do with this attempt to kind of stop time, freeze time, you know, suspend time altogether. But it's interesting when you said we go through our days and we rush through, we are always too busy, we know that much. I think we also sometimes hope that something good will happen. We'll be released from these terrible times. Something will happen. They are dark times and you think you're going to be redeemed or things are really good and something terrible is going to happen. So either way, there's a kind of an anticipation. I mean, I think anticipation is, is a great word because, you know, we have our mundane anticipation and our big hopes for, you know, big things that will happen. You know, you're facing an illness and you hope, you know, the illness will be cured and you're facing a professional challenge and you're hoping, you know, it will go away or you'll overcome or whatever. I think Ceylon offers us an opportunity to really hold on, step outside that river of life, that stream of life, and keep with it for a second, even for a split of a second, you know, stop, step out wait for a second, you know, reflect on what is in front of you and maybe an extension on larger questions you're facing. What happens then in these poems? Because it's not a slowing down and staying with time in a purely contemplative monkish way. Because I think what happens then when he feels to be more in touch with language, it's a very raw, visceral experience, but it's not that it becomes a form of meditation or withdrawal from the world. We draw certainly not, because the poetry, you know, is filled with historical and cultural references. Those references are entry points to, to thinking, uh, to thinking about those references and what they potentially could mean and how we could relate to those references and where do they lead us. So I think this stopping for a moment and stepping away means also engaging with those references and their various implications. I think another thing, I want to get back to a moment what you mean by thinking, because it's not instrumental calculation, it's another kind of thinking. I also think what opens up when Ceylon takes language and slows down our relationship to it, there's this idea that it becomes, again, a form of communication after communication broke down or something else happened with language. So this ambiguous, strange relation to the language of German, which was the language of the murderers, the language of the Nazis, the language used, and completely a language, like all languages, completely capable of carrying out death sentences, distorting reality, demeaning people. So language had all the capacity to do the worst things in the world. And Ceylon used it and said it can also be a way to try to reach somebody else, to, write, to try to reach a reader maybe and to touch somebody. I don't think Ceylon meant to say German was corrupted and the real German was somewhere else. He said language has this dimension, this terrible dimension and this abyssal dimension, but also this other dimension to open up to another. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's also the philosophical dimension of language and what language is capable of. You know, I see him to a certain extent as a part of, you know, a much broader interest in language, philosophically speaking, in the 20th century. You know, we could name a whole array of thinkers who turned their attention to language in the 20th century, understanding that language is really the medium in which and through which we live our lives and discover the world and engage with those around us. So not necessarily big metaphysical ideas are what counts, but really that element, that musical, corporal element that we rarely think about. Um, so if you think about, you know, Walter Benjamin or Heidegger or Wittgenstein, Husserl and others, you know, language is central to them. And I think Celan, as a poet who was very interested in philosophy, certainly places himself in this tradition. And another element to it, when we think about language, is um, the theological or spiritual foundation of language. You know, in the Judeo-Christian world, it is with and through language that the world first emerges. That's the beginning of Genesis. And I think grappling with his biographical and historical circumstances, Ceylon engages this theological, spiritual dimension in his concentration on language. Which is interesting that you bring up Genesis. Also, one of the other references that is probably Buber, the kind of idea of a dialogue as creating a connection. But the Genesis that the creation of the world depends or is constituted through language. It's not that there's no reality beforehand or that material reality is, but that language is needed for us to relate and make sense of it or to see where it doesn't make sense, not have a comprehensive meaning. But this act of creation is a very tenuous and I think incredibly bold and powerful one for Ceylon after the Holocaust. So he mm -hmm. takes poetry as a means to say, I have to reconstitute or constitute for myself how I live in the world with other people. When we would think in the language of today, he's a survivor of trauma, he's a survivor of historical displacement, he's a refugee, he's an exile he ultimately will suffer from, you know, great psychiatric difficulty, other personal difficulties, etc. So the language of psychology and history and legality doesn't quite correspond to what he does as a poet. That's correct. That's correct. I think, you know, we need to, when we read Ceylon, go back to this biblical, spiritual dimension. You know, this moment in which we read and God said, there should be light, and there is light. I think as a poet, that's what he's striving for, this moment in which you know, light may emerge through the power of language. I think in Germany after the war, Paul Celan was a very ambiguous figure. He was considered very difficult, hard to understand. There's an unfortunate characterization that all of his German are neologisms. He greatly resented this. And he said several times very defensively, I do not invent any words at all. It's reality, which is so unimaginable. And all the words already exist in all the dictionaries. So he used a lot of very old words, forgotten words. There's a tendency among critics and to take the words apart even further and disassemble them and read things into them, which I think Celan really didn't like because he said, this is all human language. It's been used and spoken. And at the same time, he said, The language I use in poetry, nobody really speaks. So it's this estrangement of ordinary language. And in Germany, I think two things happen. 
On the one hand, he was considered someone who would at least give the Germans poetry back. And we had the famous dictum, which reigned supreme for decades, the philosopher Adorno, who had said, it is barbaric to write poetry after Auschwitz, because we cannot and must not attempt to represent something so horrific. And Ceylon wrote directly against that in a way. So I think there was a sense that Germans felt, oh, at least here's a Jewish poet who stays with our language and doesn't turn against it. I think that's problematic because he becomes a figure of consolation and hope. And at the same time, he's constantly accusing Germany of not acknowledging the crimes they committed, of not remembering, of not adequately remembering. So there's this double function he has as a witness to history and someone who accuses and also satisfying a kind of need for people to feel, oh, well, at least German survives. I think instinctively he understood that the poet, beyond the ability to create lasting artworks in language, is also a figure of the public realm, of the public sphere. So if you read his letters, if you carefully read his public addresses, I think there's a lot there which allows us to think of him as someone who really enters the public realm and makes a very clear stance, often a critical stance vis-a-vis -vis his German readership. And I think that overall, both in his poetry and in his public appearances, in addresses, letters, and so on, he did manage to have an impact on the manners in which, in the German-speaking world, the Holocaust and the Second World War as a whole is addressed. Yeah, and he found a way probably to get around Adorno's statement. Adorno, who partly wanted to provoke with that statement probably, and also say, let's not make things too easy on ourselves and say, we can just represent this here and move along. And in a way, he challenged the entire German tradition and said, this is a tradition that gave us Beethoven and Mozart and Rilke and Nietzsche and great and wonderful philosophy and poetry and also the most terrible crimes. So how do we reconcile that in this same exact tradition, this, which prided itself on being the height of civilization, also produced the most horrific crimes against humanity? Yeah, yeah. I think ironically, you know, both of them share the same sense. You know, Adorno, you know, with this famous phrase about poetry after Auschwitz being barbaric, forces us to stop for a second, not to assume that poetry the way it was always written can be you know, written in the future. And Tzela, I think, in his very difficult, intricate language, in his work on language, and with his historical references, forces us to understand that poetry cannot just continue as if nothing had happened. So I think they actually share this sense that there is a caesura, that something profound has happened that demands of us not necessarily a new beginning, but certainly a moment in which we reflect seriously, deeply on where we are. You said there's a, these public addresses on the Meridian speech. So Ceylon gets a couple of prizes and he gives a speech and he talks about what happens to language. And there's yes. a, quite a well-known quote. I'll read the quote. It's quite interesting what he does and how he talks about what happens to language. And I want to get back to what you said earlier, that he invites us to start thinking through these references. And so the quote is, reachable, near and not lost. There remained in the midst of the losses this one thing, language. It, the language, remained, not lost, yes, 
in spite of everything. But it had to pass through its own answerlessness, pass through frightful muting, pass through the thousand darknesses of death-bringing speech. It passed through and gave back no words for that which happened. Yet it passed through this happening, passed through and could come to light again, enriched by all this, end quote. So what you said, there were no words. There's death-bringing speech, the kind of functionary operational administrative speech that, for example, Hannah Arendt in her Eichmann book exposed and said that language is totally capable of saying the most horrifying things in the most mundane, banal ways. So Zilanza, language has passed through all of this. So as if German is a subject passing through history, comes out on the other side, comes to light again. And then he says, enriched by all this. And in that little word enriched, in the German word, angereichert, bereichert, he has the word reich, which is the thousand year reich. So as if within each word, there's still an echo on these terrible other ways of using the same word. And... Then he comes out and says, though, I can still and I have to still use this language because also the other option would have been to be mute. Mm -hmm. Or would the other option have to adopt another language? And Ceylon said, you cannot be a poet in two languages. Bilingualism does not exist for a poet. It is the language, your mother tongue that you are born into, you have to use to write poetry. It's interesting, and the two of us, we write in different languages. We've learned different languages. You write poetry in Hebrew, right? <laughs> Do you write poetry yeah. in English as well? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't. So you can relate to that. That you feel, feel like this, this is the language, and this is my language, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And language is, you know, enriched by that through which, you know, we live our lives and with which, you know, our lives is changing. And what you said yeah. earlier that these historical references and markers all throughout the poems and a lot of the poems take, they don't take work. You actually can feel the poems, as you said, you experience them, but then you, you get a sense there's something else in here. So a lot of great critics have done all these projects and interpreted and written about Ceylon. And you said earlier, and then he encourages a kind of thinking. What do you mean by that kind of thinking, which is not just to study history and look up some records, although Ceylon was very, it was very important to him that the actual historical record is acknowledged and reported. Yeah. What I mean by it is that the set of a societal, economical, political circumstances which made the Second World War and the Holocaust possible is not gone. It's not as if 1945, you know, the war is over and we live in a completely new world, a new reality. Now we can close the book, erect memorials, remember the dead, and assume that, you know, similar things will not happen again. On the contrary, I think Ceylon knew very well that those circumstances survived the war, that Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and Japan may have been defeated. But the specter of fascism, of Nazism, of that type of chauvinism, the specter of totalitarianism is here to stay. And it will raise its head again and again and again. And the question is, how to pay attention to these circumstances in our current reality and not assume that we're done with that chapter in history and now we all live our lives happily ever after. So there's the quality to his poetry 
that forces us to think about those circumstances, political, economical, social, ethical, and link what the poems invoke to our own lives in the here and now. To take just one example, you know, from his most famous poet, you know, Deathview, when you read the poem out loud, when you say the word black milk of dawn, we drink you. Alone this phrase, you know, we drink you, relates you yourself in the first person plural and in the present tense, we drink you to your own realities in the here and now. You, the reader, in a way, become a part of the poetic experience. And yes, of course, you remember what had happened, you know, in the death camps and in the concentration camps, etc. But you're going through an emotional and a physical experience in the here and now. And I think the poem allows you to think of yourself in the context of the poem. In other words, what type of black milk of sorts I, we are drinking in the here and now? What are the questions we are facing in the here and now that are related to the circumstances Celan's poetry invokes? For me, this is a crucial element in his poetry, this, this personal relationship, this temporal relationship the poetry creates to the here and now. In other words, I think all his poems wish or strive to the moment in which after we have read them, you cannot just close the book, set the book aside and continue to live your lives as if nothing had happened. I think all his poetry is trying to motivate us to relate personally in the here and now to what the poems invoke and ask ourselves difficult questions about our own lives and our own circumstances and how we react to them. And in this poem, this Death Fugue, which is one of his most famous poems, so written in the pretty much at the very end of the war and then published, so it becomes one of his signature poems, much discussed. There's a whole debate around it much later. So he's a black milk of dawn or daybreak, we drink you at night. So he brings you into this experience, which is outrageous in a way already that he puts you in line with the people who are incarcerated in a camp, in a death camp or concentration camp. And then he says throughout the poem, the refrain is, your golden hair, Margarete, your ashen hair, Shulamit. So he puts a German woman, presumably, who's blonde with golden hair, and a Jewish woman, presumably, not with black hair, but ashen hair, next to each other. So the we is already split or it's complicated and it's a the poem starts out black milk which is an easy contradiction that even anybody would understand the child would know this is a contradiction it's not what we expect but this juxtaposition of the german woman the jewish woman with these two names these kind of names that carry so much history with them margarita is the woman in faust one of the archetypes of the german idea of femininity and knowledge shulamit comes out of the Hebrew tradition, the Bible. So in some ways, he's putting these two next to each other, but they don't get totally reconciled. They're not reconciled. They do not become one. They are entangled. I think the crucial notion here is the notion of entanglement. Yeah. In a way, they cannot live or exist without each other. And this entanglement is both their condition, but also their chance. The question is, what do you do with this entanglement? I mean, how do you account for it? 
What forms of life do you find for this entanglement? Well, I think the question he's raising there with his entanglement, which he doesn't resolve, and people try to make all sorts of, have sorts of responses. So we have a very famous dispute between Arendt and Scholem in the early 60s, which, of course, Ceylon was aware of, where Scholem basically says, you have to cut this entanglement, you have to move to Israel, you have to renounce your Germanness. It is a fallacy, a trap, a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. There is no coexistence possible. Scholem, who is renowned in Germany as a great explainer of Jewish mysticism, and Arendt, who says, I cannot disentangle myself from myself. I'm a woman, I'm a Jew, I'm a writer, I'm a philosopher, I write in German, I write in English. Within her, she can't do it. Mm -hmm. And Scholem says, this is wrong, you have to take a side here. Understandably, right? And Ceylon has the same. People are saying to him, take a side. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for Scholem, you know, history meant a justification of his own personal biographical, you know, Theology, you know, he writes his biography, you know, and he titles it from Berlin to Jerusalem. There's a very clear telos here. Life may start in Berlin, but has to end in Jerusalem. And that's also the historical lesson of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Right. I think both Ceylon and Arendt have difficulties with this notion. Obviously, you know, history taught us a lesson, but the lesson for them was not that the telos is then Jerusalem. There were, you know, different lessons to be taken from it. For Arendt, it was the turn to, you know, the question of politics, what is politics and what is our responsibility as political agents. And for Tzelan, I think in his poetry, the telos or the answer to the question raised by the Second World War and the Holocaust is going back to language, trying to work on language in a way that would allow us to live differently, you know, with ourselves and with each other. Differently, he has another poem. It starts out, the first three lines are, count up the almonds, count what was bitter and kept you waking, count me in two. And it ends, render me bitter, number me among the almonds. It's a kind of memory, it's a kind of mnemonic that you would promise, but his own memory is not redemptive. Remember me and you'll be consoled, but count me in, I'm as bitter as the almonds. Would you saying that Ceylon chooses poetry to move forward into what space? So when we talked a little while ago about the visceral experience, so what is a reader supposed to do with that, to be counted among the almonds, count, render me bitter? Actually, you don't want to be rendered bitter. And yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> so I think, you know, in many of his poems, there is this direct address to the reader. The reader feels her or himself being, you know, spoken to, addressed. You're drawn into, as a reader, to the poetic event. It's not a poem in which you're looking at something from the outside. The poem pushes you, drangles you, you know, right. kind of hits you in the face. It wants something of you. It demands attention of you. I give you two more lines from the same poem. I sought your eye when you glanced up and no one would see you. I spun that secret thread where the dew you mused on slid down to pictures. So in some ways he takes you in, responds to you, and I think that's also part of Ceylon's importance. We all are looking for something. And this is a post-war poet in a world that has been fractured and then reconstituted, that people are now living in diasporas everywhere. 
and they want to connect to someone or something. And what you're saying that each poem pulls you into something. And it's not a political consolation, or it's not the track to say, Shalom said, it goes to Jerusalem, there's hope here, you'll be redeemed here. (laughs) It's not Aaron who says, political work will be the only way in which we can be together, which is her way of doing it. So there's something else. It is something else and goes to really to each and every assertion we as human beings experience or get out of our body. In other words, pay attention to each and every word, each and every sentence, each and every person in front of you. You know, pay attention to everything you say, to everything you do. Mind each and every syllable. When you read, when you speak, when you talk, when you write, when you engage with another person, I think it's a, you know, it's an ethical challenge of the highest order, what he strives to, what he attempts. His draft to the Meridian Address, his famous address uh, when he received the Georg Prize in 1960. So in those drafts, he is writing to himself that poetry can be a school of real humanity. A school of real humanity. What does it mean by school of real humanity? I think it's precisely this, that poetry by being perhaps the highest, most complex form of linguistic human expression can teach us something about how to be better, different human beings, you know, how to interact with each other mm-hmm. in a way that really justifies this notion of humanity. I think it's interesting you say that because earlier you said a lot of people are attracted to Ceylon because he picks up the interrogation of language from Wittgenstein and Benjamin and Buber and Hofmannsthal and Heidegger, which becomes the skepticism of the post-structuralists and the philosopher theorists who a lot of them are very attracted to Ceylon. But what you're saying, there's a promise of a humanity that's not a word that really registers anymore in that kind of discourse. And I think it's interesting, your, your late and wonderful, much-missed colleague, John Feldstiner, wrote this really wonderful literary biography of Paul Ceylon. and was very committed, I think, to bringing Ceylon closer to American readers. He also had a trajectory. It's Paul Ceylon, poet, survivor, Jew. We arrived somewhere <laughs> as an identity at the end, which I think for John was a very important identity, right? And I think it gave him a way to connect to something in himself. Yes, But this idea of humanity is not an idea that you really find in post-structuralist philosophy quite as much in the people who are then grouped with Ceylon, which is Blanchot and Deleuze and Foucault and all these post-structuralist readers. Yeah. Well, they're much more invested, I think, in negative theology, in this idea of a retreat from anything that may be suspected as metaphysics or content or belief or commitment. And you can understand their position, you know, within their own biographical and philosophical context. I think Ceylon was worried that this may be too little. I mean, pure negativity, this tradition may be too little. And I think this is also where he parted ways with Adorno, and Adorno's notion of aesthetics. No, Ceylon thought that there is something to be gained by holding on to a notion of humanity. Right. Not necessarily humanism, but humanity. Right, right. So he's very close, you know, to the anarchists, and to a certain extent you could call him a socialist, or a socialist anarchist. He does want us to try at least to 
draw a vision of human coexistence to try to speak about the ways in which we live with each other and make true live with each other in the future in very concrete terms. This relation to anarchism is interesting. You bring this up. He references it's a prize given for the German playwright Duisner, so it harks back to the early 19th century, and then he talks about the monarchy and the royals, and he says something is set free through poetry, through language, something we can encounter, which is other and maybe altogether other to us, and that is the human. So he understands the human is never subordinated to politics, never subordinated to philosophy, but emerging and not in not quite the right language, not representable, really, but it has to appear and be experienced. It cannot just be referenced and pointed at. And I think part of what he's trying to do is say poetry cannot just point at the human and say, this is about a subject, this is me speaking or about somebody else. It has to be enacted over and over. In its plurality, I think this is actually where he's quite close to Hannah Arendt, her notion of plurality. So the other is not just you know someone who has different tastes and I know what a different set of values. The other is that who I cannot understand, comprehend, relate to at all. The person or the group that is absolutely alien to me. And then the question that I have to ask myself, okay, so how do we live together? How do we bridge that gap? Because if we don't ask the question, if we don't try to address the question, we may end up not just excluding each other, but also turning on each other. So going back to the set of circumstances that resulted you know, in the Second World War and in the Holocaust. I always thought that Ceylon being so important for so many American poets and so many French poets, and we have great translators, Pierre Joris, Michael Hamburger started, that the experience of having somebody speak to you in a language you don't understand is a very common experience. Most people have tried to talk to somebody and they can't understand. And I think there's something there that that means we know the other person is human. We know the other person wants to communicate. But we can't communicate. But we both use language. So somehow I think Ceylon that he has is German. And sometimes people say to me, oh, German, you're a native speaker, right? So you understand this. And I look at the poem and I think, uh, no, I don't understand it. I feel something. It resonates in certain ways and it probably resonates differently. And it actually unsettles my idea of native German. So I think this experience of being encounter difference in someone else's language is a very profound and human experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we need sometimes philosophy and theories to say, what does it mean, the other and the human? I say it happens all the time, and it doesn't even have to be an epistemological conundrum that I can't understand what you just said, and we have to have all sorts of <laughs> philosophical discussions. If you start speaking Hebrew, you'll lose me in a word or two, right? <laughs> so, so I think this experience is at the heart of Ceylon, which is really interesting that he's trying to say there is something in language itself which is so close to not being understood, but it's not communication. It's not communication. No, it, but it yeah, reveals it's, another otherness in us. Yeah. It's the closest, you know, I can get to, you know, trying to grapple with what Benjamin calls Ursprache or U-language right. in his essay on the task of the translator. 
Benjamin had this fantasy that there is some kind of a foundational language beyond and before all other languages, that all languages go back to this one or right. language. You said earlier, we have these fantasies, it's mathematics or science, there's a truth hidden in the universe somehow, there's some, which is maybe a very seductive truth, but it's also a risky one, because it means everything can be translated into one thing. Yeah. yeah Elon yeah. probably saying, you can't translate one person into another person. It's completely impossible. And nonetheless, they can communicate. And poetry is the medium uh, in and through which they may try to do so. I think that's the power of this poetry. And maybe that's the reason why so many you know, poets and translators feel attracted to his poetry. And he was a big translator. He translated Emily Dickinson, Shakespeare, all sorts of things, Neruda, into German, which was interesting. So he translates out of languages that he knew, picked up, as other poets did before him. I once went to the great Harold Bloom's office because I don't speak any Yiddish, and I can't hear that because I hear German so I wanted to understand whether there's Yiddish in Paul Ceylon. And so Harold had, you know, I went to his office hour and I sat down and he said, so first of all, he gave me a little overview of who I am with my name and said, well, <laughs> we can establish who you are but with your name. And then he said, let me look at this. He said, I spoke Yiddish until I was six years old. And he read a couple lines and he says, there's no Yiddish in here. I could hear that for you. And it was interesting because... Bloom accessed his childhood language and just glanced at a few lines. And he says, it is no, there's no Yiddish in here. And I loved that, that actually he felt it. He didn't have to do and scrutinize and look at dictionaries and histories and everything. And he can glance at it and he said, no, it's not in here. And then we talked about Selah and he, she was quite interested in also, of course, only in relation to other poets because Bloom's ideas are a whole network of relationships. And then he said, how much Rilke did he know? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know at that point. That's what probably took, set me on my next path for the next decade or so. Yeah. And Ceylon was very interested in German poets and had studied all of them. And at the same time, I wonder when Bloom said there's no Yiddish in there, there was some echo still of some other languages in there that Ceylon put back into German. I think this, the language is enriched afterwards, that actually poetry is richer today with someone like Ceylon, who says they're echoes of history, of suffering, but also of a possibility of connection in there. Well, his extensive use of other languages, especially of Hebrew in his German poetry, I think, you know, paved the way or opened the door to other poets today who are experimenting with multilingualism. Right. You know, thinking about Yoko Tafadai, to name just one example. So Yoko's poetry and the fact that she's able to move between Japanese and German, I believe has at least something to do with Celan's attempt to, hmm. to do similar things. So in that regard, I mean, he was also a pioneer, you know, saying that German and German poetry can be much more than just the reiteration and the, I know what, the, the admiration of a certain canon. But it's interesting that all poetry has to work at the periphery of everyday language in a way. It has to do something that's not proper in one canon. I always find that a bit odd that we have literature departments in universities that have these strict demarcations where people fit in. So, <laughs> so someone fits in. Ceylon was not born in Germany, didn't live in Germany. Kafka was never in Germany, and they're considered German writers and poets, which was wonderful, I guess, but they could also be other poets, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I think that's also a problem for us today in universities, especially in the humanities, that we pay so much attention and we're so anxious about disciplinary boundaries. On the one hand, there's a lot of talking about multidisciplinarity, but the truth of the matter is that we still operate, you know, within disciplinary brackets. I wonder whether we need that, though, because it is so disorienting to think that we are in poetry encountering the fact that maybe the world isn't so easily organized into what's native, what's not native, what's mine, what's not mine. That's why I think people want to be reassured. That's my language. That's how I speak. Other people don't get me. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think, look, thinking again about Ceylon, I think, again, within this marvelous tradition, going back to German Romanticism, he thought of his poetry as being not different than philosophy. Right. It's a mode of philosophical engagement with the world. And best philosophy for him was a mode of poetic engagement with the world. I think that's why he's reading Heidegger so obsessively as of the mid-50s or so when he starts reading Heidegger. And then he reads everything he can by Heidegger because they share this basic belief that poetry and philosophy share same roots or belong to the same intellectual horizon. I think that's very hard for people to grasp, that they share the same interest in poetry as being foundational and different, separate from philosophy, from politics, from all sorts of other ways of thinking. And then you have Heidegger, the philosopher who declares his allegiance to the Nazis, we now have these brown notebooks or black or brown <laughs> black notebooks okay brown i thought so yeah. he's just an anti-semite in his private diaries it's just embarrassing and Arendt remains his friend throughout his life and ceylon keeps on going and visits and does readings and heidegger is very deeply engaged and i think what's remarkable is that i would say this remains a question for us rather than a simple answer. What they're trying to work out is something that we haven't worked out at all. Yeah, yeah. I think Ceylon understood this just as did Arendt that Heidegger to a large extent was a, a product of his time and certainly a man full of weaknesses, a coward in many ways and you know, not the kind of person you know, you would invite over for dinner, but still his thought and his intellectual endeavor cannot be dismissed and just ignored because of the fact that as an individual, as a person, right. he was questionable. Very questionable. It's very difficult, I think, for us because we want to have these kind of clear categories and say not not to be engaged with, right? And he still yeah. leaves us. And for Paul Ceylon, he was probably the most important German writer, right? He was definitely the most important German writer, German thinker of his time, for sure. There's a younger Israeli poet who goes to Paris in the 1960s and wants to visit Ceylon. You probably know this anecdote. It's very funny. And he wants to go and he talks to the secretary in the Rue Durm and says, is Mr. Ceylon here? And the secretary says, yes, yes, you can go to his office. And then... There's a poet who wants to visit you. He's a great admirer. You think you're the most important poet. And Ceylon says, just give me a second. I'll be right there. An hour later, the young poet goes to the secretary and says, where's Mr. Ceylon? She said, I don't know. He's, in his, he's waiting for you. And he said, no, I've been in front of the office the whole time. And he went to the bathroom and climbed out the window and escaped because he didn't like yeah. these, yeah. these admiring yeah. visitors. <laughs> You know, that's, that's the great Nathan Zach, who's by now yes. you know, a very old, distinguished poet. And uh, yeah, that's the story, you know, the way he tells it. Yeah. yeah. 
which is kind of an interesting allegory to say the great, you know, Hebrew poet sort of born in 1930s or 10 years after Zeland comes to pay homage and tribute to the great poet of survival and about it. You work it out yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, especially in Zach's case, because, you know, he comes from the German Jewish tradition, translated as Alaska Schuler. He has this in and with him, and then translated Ceylon, of course, you know, later on. So there's the various ironic points about this story. Yeah. And as we know, then Ceylon goes to Jerusalem a couple times in the late 1960s, and he. He visits and he writes a quite moving account that he actually is quite touched and feels there's a part of him that feels at home, right? So yes, that. sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, beautiful poems are written, you know, during his visit to, to Israel and Jerusalem and thereafter. There's a wonderful correspondence with Ilana Shmueli, a youth friend from Chernovitz, who then meets again in Israel. She will later come to visit him in Paris. So it's a very important visit, very important trip of Ceylon to, to Israel in 1969, yeah. And those poems are then published posthumously because then, as we know, Ceylon commits suicide in 1970. And I think two things. Ilana Shmueli is one of those connections that reestablish these connections between Jerusalem, Paris, part of the German reading world, then it becomes an American world. Giselle Estrange-Celan, the widow, is a very important person actually to make his work known to people throughout the world. I think it's actually quite important to recognize she's an artist herself, very supportive of her husband, who for many reasons didn't have an easy life. And I also think didn't really have the easiest life in France as a refugee from some country that wasn't a country at that point writing German poetry. The strange thing is that he was teaching German lessons and nobody really paid much attention to him in Paris at that time, right? Yeah, he's completely in the margins of, of everything. I mean, his, his friends are Romanian immigrants living in Paris, also at the margins, like Kevin. Right, yeah. Right. Uh, he never encounters all these big names that are roaming Paris' streets around that time. <laughs> right, all the great French intellectuals he passes. Yeah, 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 yeah. none of it, yeah. And have you translated any of Ceylon's poems into Hebrew? I have not, I have not. It's something that I feel very uncomfortable with, because for me he exists really, you know, in the German original, and it's incredibly difficult for me to think of myself as a translator of his work. Maybe it will still come, you know. It's Maybe funny, it will yeah. still come. I don't translate, but I was looking through my editions of Ceylon, and I have all these different English editions in addition to the German ones, and then I noticed that over the years I rewrite all the translations. <laughs> <laughs> Not, I respect and I really admire all these translators and their work, but I go in and I edit them and I change things. And <laughs> sure, 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 sure. You cannot do it differently. And I would change many of the translations of Tzela into Hebrew if I took the time and really tried to do it. But it's difficult for me to read him in translation to Hebrew. You know, maybe that's a, a topic for a conversation by itself. Yeah, he exists for me really in the German original, perhaps, you know, in translation into English. But it's difficult for me with the Hebrew. Yeah. Right, right. I'm going to put on the podcast some of Ceylon's readings. They're actually quite powerful. We have recordings in German universities mostly. And I think there actually he found some resonance that 
hundreds or maybe even sometimes supposedly more than hundreds or thousands of students would go and listen for over an hour to his poems. And what you started out by saying, I think they had an experience. They felt something in their bodies that's visceral. It wasn't intellectual. The poems are difficult, but they stayed for over an hour and just listen to his German and they were German and it brought them something different and new. Mm -hmm. I think there's a pictorial quality to his poetry and it gets, I think, more and more accentuated toward his later work. You look at the page and they have almost the quality of an image. The punctuation, the way the lines break, the brevity, the earnestness, There's an aesthetic dimension one has to pay attention to, I think, when one sees the poem on the page. And I think something similar comes across when he reads this poem, when you listen to the cadences, to the rhythm, to the intonation. It's really a Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, for lack of a better term, to encounter his work. And the artist and his wife's work are these kind of really finely done etchings. I always think his poems are like very, very fine sculptures or crystals that sort of have this three-dimensional element. They're not flat on the page. Yeah, they're not. They're not. The contrary, yeah. Right. No, they take you places immediately. Even if there's a word you cannot understand, I think the chain of associations that gets going is, is endless. Right. Yeah. And I think this last part, that their associations that people are encouraged to allow this to happen, that it's not erudition that's going to resolve it. Because I think as fine as some of our critics are and how much, much work that they've done, it's not exhaustive what they find as the references because there are other echoes in it that are not historical facts or knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and, and I think, you know, there is a, here, to put it this way, I mean, I think there's a liturgical quality to it. Some of them read and feel like prayers or mm-hmm. post-catastrophic prayers, you know, prayers of our time. In rivers north of the future, phrases like this that have, I think, really a liturgical quality to them. There are still songs to be sung on the other side right. and right. so on. Right. Those lines go with you. Right. The way people, you know, remember San, his famous poem, San, is a good, it's a good example. You know, Niemann knetet uns wieder aus Erde und Leben. These lines go with you. They go through your body and then they accompany you wherever you go. Well, and that's an important part you're saying. There are these prayers that stay with us and that are the anchor and the one thing we have when we go through very difficult times. There's very little that we have besides language. So if language is given to us as and it echoes through us in these moments when we can't make sense of what's happening. It's too painful, too difficult, but there's language already resonating in us. I think that's a real gift that poetry can provide. It's not consolation, but at least it allows us to experience ourselves in that moment and not just fall into muteness or grapple for our own words. Yeah. Enriched. Language went through all this and came out enriched by all that. I want to thank you, Amir, for joining me on this podcast. It's great to talk with you about Ceylon. I think we've done it for, what we said, 20 years now? Yeah, yeah. It's been a pleasure, Uli. I thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a great honor. It's really fun. So I think we'll do it for another 20 years. But before that, I'll have you back on the podcast. (laughs) Sounds great. I'm, I'm happy to come back. Thank you.